So uh, hi everybody, this is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, and uh, I'm talking with one of the producers of Atlas Shrugged, the movie Part One, Harmon Kaslow. Thank you so much, Harmon, for taking the time today. Hey, Stefan, it's great to be talking with you, Tim. Okay, I've got some first questions, of course, and uh, just for the record, I'm a, a huge fan of Ayn Rand. I think that anybody who tries to deal with modern philosophy or ethics or politics or economics without taking her thinking into account is just... A pretender. But first of all, I wanted to just congratulate you and, of course, the entire team on what looks to be a truly spectacular and skilled production. Thank you very much. I mean, it's, um, it's really a, a result of a collaboration between you know, a lot of people, you know, starting with our, our writers, uh, you know, Brian O'Toole and John Angliloro, our director, Paul. Uh, we each had a fabulous cast. And a lot of the people uh, involved in the production, you know, from the uh, director, photographer, production designer, our props person. I mean, when you see the film, you can see how each one of them contributed to helping make this just uh, a real, you know, work of art, something beautiful and entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I was I was very impressed with what you all. I have a slightly minor uh, history in filmmaking myself, and I was really impressed with what you guys were able to achieve in terms of look and feel. But what I thought was even more interesting and detailed was the emotional nuances of some of the scenes that I've seen, particularly the one where Hank Reardon comes home, where the interplay between you know the philosophical and the personal and the, the emotional and the relationships, they all seem to be very detailed, very fleshed out, very rich. And that's something that's often underestimated in Ayn Rand's writing because she's so... Uh, moving and gripping philosophically and the scope of her novels is so big but I thought you guys really captured very well the details in the relationships which I think really drives the story well I mean first off you know we had an amazing cast um, most of these actors are not uh, household names some of them certainly you you will recognize from their prior body of work but um, we were just very, very lucky to assemble, you know, an amazing cast, very talented. Our primary goal really in casting uh, the people, that the characters that, that you saw in that clip and throughout the rest of the movie is just finding very, very talented people. Um, so, so we got off to a great start there. Um, our director did a fabulous job in really putting those actors into the scene and having a vision for how we could create as much uh, drama as, as we could. Because as, as you well know, the book has a lot of dialogue in it. Um, and you know, the key when you make a movie is to try to keep, keep a pace and create something cinematic and entertaining. And I think that uh, the combination of, of, of the cast and direction uh, got you what, what I think is, is pretty magical in the sense that you really get captivated by... Uh, these scenes that, that are really lifted directly out of the book. Right, and I, I also wanted to, um, not to sound overly fanboyish, but I think I was really impressed, given the amount of material that's in there, the tendency with such a large amount of material can be to rush things, but I thought that the pacing uh, and the, the detail was, was just great. So, what's now, your... Have you had a chance to see the film? Uh, I would absolutely die for a chance uh, to see the film. It's oh, been my yeah, favorite yeah, book for... Time, 
is around 100 minutes. Um, so, so we really do try to keep people on the edge of their seat. There is a lot of material. Uh, we certainly didn't catch every scene out of the book, but we did try to create a nice dramatic thread of the scenes that, that weren't there. And we really kind of tipped people through the movie. And, and you know, one of, one of the more frequent comments we get is, hey, when are we going to get to see part two? Or, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it went by very, very quickly. So I think that uh, what, what you saw just in those scenes is pretty representative of what the whole film's going to going to be. Right, right. Now, what's your history with uh, with the film? How did you get involved in, uh, in the production? Well, I was brought into the film uh, through a mutual friend, uh, John Aguilera, who, J- John is the person who acquired the rights that 18 years ago. And through a mutual friend, Howard and Karen Baldwin, uh, John had made a decision uh, in, in April, March, April of 2010 that he was not going to let the rights slip away. And in order for him to not have that occur, he needed to get a film into production. And so I was really brought in because of my background in working on lower budget films and just having a track record of being able to get uh, relatively sophisticated and challenging films into production. So John took a risk with me in, in elevating me from really a role that I played in the past as an executive producer and giving me producer responsibilities with the mandate to get this film into production before June 15th. And in fact, we were able to uh, start production on uh, Sunday, June 13th. <laughs> Movie timing is always the same, right? It's just at the last minute that everything gets done. <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, in, in, in L.A. or anywhere, I mean, you know, today, uh, you know, or yesterday, I mean, Japan suffered, you know, a traumatic uh, event with, with this uh, horrific earthquake and, and the ensuing tsunamis. And, you know, I told John... That listen, you, you have no idea, especially if you're in California, you know, if we could be disrupted, it, and the last thing I'd want to have is some you know, event occur that uh, might prevent us from starting the film on the 15th. So we gave ourselves uh, 48 hours just in case uh, you know, some, some catastrophe occurred that prevented us from actually starting production uh, on that day. Right. Now, I've been curious because, of course, the film has been talked about. It was talked about, I think, as early as the 70s as, uh, as a miniseries. And then there was the, um, the, the Brangelina adoption juggernaut was also, I think, associated with the film at some point. And now it seems like the timing couldn't be more fortuitous around the world events and the degree to which they almost seem to be lifted from the pages of the novel. Do you think that the financial catastrophe, catastrophes, particularly in Europe over the past few years, have driven the urgency of the film, or do you think it was just a number of other factors coming together uh, at the same time? Well, I mean, for, for starters, I mean, many events from the story parallel real-life events today. I mean, for instance, uh, in the story, the government passes business sporting laws such as uh, the anti-dogging dog rule and the equalization of opportunity bill. And, and, and in the life that we're experiencing today, the government's passing such laws as Emergency Economic Stabilization Act and the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Um, but, but really, you know, from a relevant standpoint, I mean, on a more fundamental level, I mean, the story really matters today because, you know, it, it traumatizes many 
in the timeless philosophic truths about human nature, in the role of reason in human life, the morality and rational self-interest versus greed, you have the role of government and the citizen, and in our need of political and economic freedom. And I think that these truths will always matter. And so I think that the film really always will be relevant. It could have been relevant. Did we get lucky? I think we absolutely got lucky because a lot of the things that we're experiencing are things that, that, that really were almost verbatim identified in the book. Right. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, it's, I'm sure you guys have talked about quite a bit. You have a futuristic novel that now so much time has passed that it almost seems to be set in the recent past, which is a very kind of trippy uh, thing to, to wrap your head around, but I think really works beautifully. I mean, with the few exceptions that railroads aren't quite as important now as they used to be, but, you know, if, if I can believe that uh, giant orcs can jump from giant elephants, I'm sure I can believe that railroads are important, and of course it is just a metaphor for the, uh, the emotional and motive power of philosophy. I'm curious about how the casting went down. Uh, did you uh, look for a particular kind of look? Uh, did you mostly go for a personality type? Or, or how was it that you guys approached the casting? Because I think everyone who's a fan of the novel has had that late night conversation about who you'd put in, in what role. And to, to actually have been part of it must have been a wonderful thing. Yeah, I mean, first, first off, a lot of the pre-publicity or publicity regarding the making of a film based on Atlas Rudd surrounded the fact that some very notable uh, actors expressed an interest in playing various roles in the movie. I mean, everyone who has followed this is aware that there is a period of time that Angelina Jolie, for example, expressed an interest in playing, you know, Dag Taggart. And when the film was going through those incarnations, the film project through those incarnations, the ambition of John Aguilar was that this was going to be done by a studio. Um, and, and I think that a studio would take on this project if they had the added assurance of some marquee names. When, when John decided that he was going to make the film independently, and, and, and I've been you know, quoted in, in the word that I use, I think got a little misconstrued, but, but what I told John when I was brought on the project in April of 2010 was that in order for us to accomplish this task, we needed to eliminate all possible distractions. And one of the distractions is trying to accommodate the needs and schedule of an A-list actor. And that I thought that if we viewed the project where the book was the brand, that the book was ultimately more important than anything else, that as long as we cast a movie with talented actors, we could get away with for example, an actor not exactly looking like one of the characters out of the book because their performance would be far more important to the people who are passionate and inspired by the book than somebody who looks the part but doesn't play it very well. And so that was the approach that we took. We got very lucky uh, with uh, engaging a casting director named Ronnie Eskel who's done a lot of fabulous uh, independent films very reputable, brought an enormous amount of credibility to the project, which is what we needed. Okay, with all the full starts, I don't think Hollywood took us seriously that we really were going to begin the film. So banking on uh, Ronnie Yaskel's credibility um, and the fact that she had been in the industry for a you know, substantial period of time, she was really able to bring in and, and read 
a lot of fabulous actors, um, and, and I think that we were really lucky to be able to assemble a cast who, through just their real pure talent, not being driven by what movies they had done in the past and what their marquee value and all this, but whether or not they really just had talent, acting talent, really could comprehend and execute the role. Um, she did a she did a great job. Now, obviously, you have to build the cast around the Dagger character. So it was a mad scramble because uh, we didn't really decide on the Dagny Taggart uh, character, I believe, until Thursday before the Sunday we were starting. <laughs> and, and once we got uh, Taylor Schilling, who was uh, courageous enough to take on the role, I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it's just, you know, to, to think about that decision in and of itself. Once she was able you know, to, to give us the green light that she was prepared to take on that role, then we had a, a whole slew of very talented actors that we had already read, and uh, the whole cast came together quite quite rapidly, and, and I think that people are really, really pleased with the choices uh, that we ultimately made. Yeah, I think um, as I was sort of following the the production as it was going along, there were, there were two things that I thought were great. Uh, one, of course, was that you weren't using name stars, because... You know, I mean, you know that you're going to get a certain quality of performance and a certain recognizability and a certain marketability, but it would be impossible if Angelina Jolie were playing Dagny Taggart to not look at that and say, hey, that's Angelina Jolie playing Dagny Taggart. It wouldn't be the person. That's the problem you get with the stars is you get the exposure, but you don't get the character just in and of themselves. You can't watch Jack Nicholson without knowing you're watching Jack Nicholson. So I think going with the people who weren't as recognizable really lets people connect more to the characters without going through the lens of the star, I thought that was great. And also, I I couldn't imagine, for the life of me, again, as a complete outsider, but I just couldn't imagine how the integrity of the story could be maintained if it was going through a major uh, studio production. I mean, it's almost like this is how Howard Rourke would have made the movie if he'd been a movie maker rather than an architect, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, and, you know, Kudos need to go out to, you know, again, really the writers, because it, it is a creative process. And what you're basically telling the people writing the screenplay is, I don't need you to reimagine this. What I really need you to do is to make this cinematic. And to the extent that we can use Ives' uh, words in the movie, let's try and do that. The first temptation you know, that, that a writer would have is, to give it, you know, their own fingerprints, so to speak, and to make changes. And, you know, we avoided that, and I think that that has ended up paying us enormous dividends because people who have been inspired by the book and, and, and where the book has, you know, changed their lives, and they trek to come and see this movie after waiting many, many years, and they hear those very words come to life, really appreciate the effort that we've done. And so um, it, it, it's all about having, you know, that mindset. And, and if you went to a studio, I think, you know, a studio would be, you know, sort of hard-pressed to say, you know what, let's just use the, the same words that Ayn Rand had used when she wrote the book. I mean, I think that they would, you know, allow creative freedom. And, and I can tell you, if you, you know, have a follow-up conversation with John Angry Laura, he will tell you some of the incredible journeys uh, that that writers took with adapting uh, the, the book into a movie and creating things. There's there's 
version of screenplay, for example, where Ayn Rand herself is in the movie. <laughs> well, there, it, I think... Just, you know, and that, which is, you know, for us, which is incredibly hard to comprehend. But uh, anyway, if you, you've got to see that it, you know, your, your um, description you know, really does fit because John did have the freedom, in a sense, to do it his way and not be persuaded by a system that would have been tempted to make changes that, that could have been, you know, fatal to uh, keeping our core audience, uh, you know, interested and supportive of the film. Yeah, and I, th- I think because the film is so loved, loved, and of course, a lot of your initial audience are going to be the many fans of the books who, who you know, like... Trekkies and, and like Lord of the Rings people, but hopefully with a bit more philosophical integrity, they know the story and they know the dialogue and they know the characters so well that if you deviated it, uh, then it, they would feel that and, and they would be, it would be t- all they'd feel is the deviation from the novel and they wouldn't be able to follow the story in and of itself as an original story, but at the same time they wouldn't be able to follow it in the way that they understood the book. So I think that would be quite jarring for people. So, you know, again, I think that's the right thing to do, but I can't imagine that a major studio wouldn't want to dilute certain things to appeal to a wider audience or dumb it down a little bit to appeal to more of a wider audience, which is exactly what Ayn Rand fought. And of course, she didn't allow any edits of the book, but I did want to mention just because she does actually share up in the book. Uh, there's a little bit in Galt's Gulch where a woman who's a writer looks longingly after uh, John Galt uh, just in the, the last part of the book. I'll send you a reference if you're curious. She does actually show up in her own novel. She did a little bit of a Hitchcock walk-in uh, just at the end, but uh, <laughs> that's just a little bit of detail for an Ayn Rand geek like me. But um, So how's the, how's the response been? How's the rollout going? Uh, what's, uh, what's, uh, are, you, are you popping champagne? Are you still with bated breath? Uh, how's it going? And that's just just for the audience to, to know. That's atlasshruggedpart1.com. Yeah, part one, the number one dot com. Um, and, and we also have other goodies. I mean, we posted up some music um, from from the movie. Uh, we called it the John Galt theme, um, but but it's just really a compilation of a lot of the various themes in the movie to give people an idea of the sort of production value that they're going to experience. There's also, again, you refer to it. There's a clip. You know, directly out of the movie. Um, and we're starting, you know, really to get um, a, a lot of awareness and attention from some of the, the you know, the major uh, media outlets, such as the LA Times, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, Hannity, John Stossel, Glenn Beck. And so, you know, I really feel like we're getting, you know, this traction. I just need people to understand that, um, 
you know, the exhibitors have a very low level of patience for a movie. Um, and so people need to really become committed if they're interested in seeing the movie to see it on that opening weekend. That's, that's really, really vital uh, to us. And if we can get pretty decent numbers to show up on the opening weekend, we can really begin to platform the movie out. And, and I think people like you and myself you know, really think that positive change uh, for this country could be forthcoming if people will get out, see the movie, understand the philosophies that uh, are espoused in the book, and, and see the merit of this. I mean, there is change and a revolution going on in this country, um, and, and this movie is one way of exposing it to an enormous audience, but, but we need... You know, we need support you know, on the ground from a lot of people to make that happen. Right. So I, I'm going to strongly recommend listeners uh, to this. To I mean, obviously, if you're a fan, you're going to go and see it. But, uh, of course, it's the ultimate date movie. There's nothing more romantic than pounding steam trains uh, and, and tunnels. So that's very, very important for people. Take dates. Take people. Take your grandmother. Take people who had, have had no exposure to it uh, because it will be some, a way of opening up your interest to other people and getting other people to understand how powerful this, uh, this story is. So I really want to – you can go to facebook.com forward slash Atlas Shrugged Movie. I think that's your Facebook page. Now, there's also, I think – sorry, go ahead. You know, what I was going to say is, um, and, and, you know, we're dealing with a very tough crowd when you start uh, dealing with objectivists, um, who are people who have, who have ascribed to and follow uh, on uh, philosophies. Um, but, but, but it's important for people to understand, you know, two things. One is, when you try to adapt a book, um, we're not trying to emulate what you imagine that should be. We'll never really be able to capture someone's imagination as well as that person does. And everyone's going to have a different imagination of what the book should be. So I think when people see the movie, they should go in there you know, with an expectation of, of really you know, how good of a job did we do and how faithful are we to the book and is, is the book informative to them about you know, her philosophy. And I think if people approach it with the right attitude, we're going to be able to cross over beyond just our core audience. And people will see that this is an incredibly inspiring story, for example, for women. I mean, if you look at Dagny Taggart, a very objective uh, point of view, not in the context of Atlas Shrugged, but just in the context of the story they're going to see. I mean, what you see is a very attractive, smart, tenacious woman with a lot of things working against her and she's getting them done and and she's really accomplishing a lot when the government and the people that she worked for in a world that's not really uh, supportive of her and, and she's getting things done and it's very very inspiring and she I think comes across as an incredible role model and that's what I think you know your listeners and the fans need to see this at this is an opportunity if we treat the movie properly, if we put it in the right context to really broaden the audience and expose it to a much, much greater amount of the population than even the book has today. Yeah, certainly. I, you know, uh, my hope is that people see the movie, are excited by the quality of the movie, which, again, I, I can't say enough good things about from what I've seen. And, of course, you know, the, the, the invitation goes out to continue to read the book and to explore the thoughts of this uh, amazing uh, woman. So... 
Uh, just just before uh, we, we, we finish up here, uh, I, based on my, again, limited experience on movie sets, there's usually at least a half dozen good stories that come out of the, um, the, the production time. Uh, do you have any sort of that, that roll off the tip of your tongue that were particularly exciting during the uh, production? I mean, the whole adventure of making a movie, um, you know, as you wisely pointed out, I mean, it includes a lot of, a lot of, let's say, drama, so to speak. And certainly we encountered it, you know, almost on a daily, daily basis. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, as we were nearing the end of production, I believe we only had three days of photography left. And one of our critical uh, locations vaporized on it didn't work, wasn't available. Oh. Um, and, and so, you know, our, our crafty production team, they worked around the clock, they found a location out here in Santa Monica, uh, our designer and prop people and other uh, personnel that would dress the set, they came in, they converted it into um, exactly what we wanted. And, and I think that people have no appreciation for the fact that 12 hours earlier, you know, it didn't exist. And, and, and what I'm referring to is uh, the location where we shot the uh, Reardon steel scenes. Um, wow, that is a lot of dressing. Example. We, we had some great stories. Uh, we sent a, uh, a, a very uh, tenacious crew out on the road to shoot uh, that, that provided some footage for us. And, and you know, they have stories where, you know, they're following trains. Um, you know, with cameras, and, and in today's world, you know, the TSA, the, uh, <laughs> the, the Security Administration, seeing anything pointed at a, you know, public mode of transportation certainly raises a lot of eyebrows. And here these guys are, in, in, you know, in a utility van, the door slid open, <laughs> point something at a train, driving down the road, and next thing you know, this guy's, you know, uh, radioing ahead. You know, uh, I, I think I'm getting stalked by something that doesn't look good. So, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff, you know, happened behind the scenes. What, but, but what people will see is a very polished, uh, finished product that we're really, really proud of and that we hope, uh, you know, they, they come and see it in the theaters on the 15th. Uh, they get there. We have some nice production stills at our website, atlasshrugpart1.com. Uh, and, and shortly we'll be listing you know, the various theaters where the film is playing and people can pre-buy tickets and really show the exhibitors that there's a, a true interest in demand uh, for the movie. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it, it does need to be a collective effort. People really need to step up to make sure that they get, as I hate to put it so crudely, but there are the economics that we're all aware of, of get the asses in the seats, uh, get the demand going, and raise the profile of this film to the point where it breaks out of the um, the subculture of the people who know it already, which is a pretty significant subculture, but uh, I think that the film is going to have by far the most impact, uh, both, both artistically, philosophically, and socially, if it uh, gets as wide an audience. And I think those of us who are fans of the book uh, really need to just step up, grit our teeth, and annoy the hell out of people to get them to come and see this film, because I really do think that it's, uh, it's worth it, and it is the only way that it's going to have the kind of impact that the story and the movie deserves. I couldn't agree with you more, Steph, and I really appreciate you giving me a chance to uh, talk to your audience. Oh, my pre my pleasure, and uh, I really look forward to seeing the film, and uh, maybe I'll give you a line again after I've seen it. Okay, very good. Thanks, Thanks Harmon. Take care.